Thank you for listening to a Quiet Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. All right. Glad to address you again. Our series has been Aspects of Family Worship. Thank you for the. Thank you for the enthusiasm, man. I just always appreciate Jared's enthusiasm. Jared started us off, as he said, on biblical family culture and on the idea of family worship, and that was three weeks ago. I jumped in a couple of weeks ago, thinking out loud about why we're doing these topical teachings at all, and I pulled back to ask the most basic question I could. What is prayer? Because of how that topic took shape, I asked Jared if I could make this section a two-parter. Then last week, Andy took the stage to go in-depth on why we sing, and he gave practicum for singing in family worship and in the home generally. Now I'm ready to finish up this topic for now with part two on biblical prayer and family worship. As I've handed out to all of you, I've translated parts one and two into bullet point notes. They don't capture everything, but they capture a lot, as we discovered as we were trying to make copies and print them all. Um... I left footnotes, and there's still room for more thoughts, though, on the last page, especially if you want to take any notes with, if you have pens with you. But those are in the front if you guys need any copies. I'm going to start with some quotes from the little book that we have been mentioning. I'll be reading from Family Worship by Don Whitney. In the book, he tells about five siblings and what they said at their parents' 50th wedding anniversary celebration. One of the siblings tells the story. He says, All five of us children decided to express thanks to our father and mother for one thing without consulting each other. Remarkably, all five of us thanked our mother for her prayers, and all five of us thanked our father for his leadership of family worship. My brother said, Dad, the oldest memory I have is of tears streaming over your face as you taught us from the Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings how the Holy Spirit leads believers. The brother said, when I was only three, God used you in family worship to convict me that Christianity was real. He said, no matter how far I went astray in later years, though today this man is an elder in his church, he said, I could never seriously question the reality of Christianity, and I want to thank you for that, talking to his mom. The book also quotes Charles Spurgeon, who I'm going to quote a few times tonight. And Spurgeon once said, Brethren, I wish it were more common. I wish it were more universal with all Christians to have family prayer. We sometimes hear of children of Christian parents who do not grow up in the fear of God. And we are asked how it is that they turn out so badly. In very many, very many cases, I fear there is such a neglect of family worship that it's not probable that the children are at all impressed by any piety supposed to be possessed by their parents. The Bible speaks clearly to the responsibilities of fathers to teach our children. In the Psalms, you're going to be seeing it, as I've mentioned, in the notes. These are things that our fathers taught us, things that we should be teaching others. But also in Deuteronomy, in Ephesians, this isn't a law that passed away, like the sacrifice laws or the kosher eating laws. The New Testament continues to reiterate it and call for it. The expectation is that we teach the faith to our children explicitly, you know, telling them, and by example. That includes prayer. 
how to pray, what to pray, how often to pray, at what occasions we should pray, in what manner we should pray, at what a, and what a healthy prayer life looks like privately, or what corporate gathered prayer should look like. If God's Spirit has given faith to both you and your children as they grow up, then they will soak up what you show them, and they'll hear what you tell them. If they're never truly converted, then they will misconstrue what you're showing and telling them. Now that happens. And I'm going to set that aside for tonight, a a different subject for later. Tonight, let's presume the most hopeful outcome, that all of our children repent, believe, and persevere in the faith to the end of their lives. And let's get into the topic. Prayer is speaking, singing, writing, thinking, groaning, or gesturing in faith to God. Those are the biblical boundaries that shape what prayer is. And they're the boundaries because that's what you see the people in the Old and New Testaments doing. But what about the biblical boundaries that shape the content of those prayers? What we say and how we say it. I'm going to provide a starting list, not exhaustive. You can never be exhaustive with this, but enough to think about for now. First, I'm going to mention the foundational principle. Prayer should honor God's word. This is, on, this is starting on page four of your notes for today's message, by the way. So if I'm giving you a lot of principles, I've made a list of them so you'll be able to keep track. Prayer should honor God's word. Imitate it, involve it, obey it, and avoid saying things that contradict it. 1 John 5, 14 through 15 reads, And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So here, John is saying that we need to ask according to God's will. And then we know he hears us. How do we know God's will? I don't think John expects his readers to know God's hidden, predestinating will of decree. We can't confidently know that will. But John is telling his audience in 1 John that they can regularly pray with confidence. It isn't on you to know the hidden, providential will of God. But it is on you to know the revealed will of God. We have God's inspired words. And the whole counsel of God should inform our prayers. We should pray like the Bible's prayers. We should quote the Bible at times. We should take a posture of obedience to the word if we know already what it's telling us to do. And we shouldn't pray for things the Bible calls sinful. With our kids, I've started asking them to participate more in the prayer portion of family worship for a long time, several years, it's mostly just me praying, um, and we'll go over more of that in a second. But I started trying to involve them more recently, and I was asking them in a really simple way. Okay, Daddy's going to say a sentence. You say a sentence, and I was just asking for one sentence from each of them. Just try to contribute. And Calvin, he's usually going to want to ask for the night to be super short, like feels like it's one second long, so that he can get back to tomorrow and get back to playing and not have to be in bed. Um, and he might ask for something that 
um, we told him he can't have, like screen time in the morning. So if he's asking for something disobedient that I've already told him he can't have, then I'll quickly address that with him then and there. Disobedience would be a sin, Calvin. Don't, don't ask for what would be disobedient. But that brings me to the second principle. Prayer may be spontaneous and improvised. We see several examples of spontaneous prayer. In Acts 7.59, it says, As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Likely eyes up to heaven. I dare say that Stephen didn't plan any of what he was about to say on the day of his death. Stephen's entire day, in fact, was a fulfillment of what Jesus said in Luke 12 when he told his disciples, they're going to be dragged before the synagogues, and the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And that included Stephen's spontaneous prayer. The Holy Spirit taught him what to say in that moment. Another spontaneous prayer in Scripture comes from Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 2.4, the king asks him. So he has this chance before the king. Finally, he has an opportunity to say something. The king asks him, what is it you want? Nehemiah's response as soon as he asked me that, then I prayed to the God of heaven. It was immediate. So he spontaneously prayed. We don't know exactly what he said to the God of heaven, but it was certainly short, it was immediate, and it was improvised. And in contrast to this, the third principle, prayer may also be pre-planned, and it could involve the reading and the utilization of pre-written content in faith. In Matthew 6, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he gave them exact words that they could use. And we've been using them for 2,000 years now. Of course, that's not a license to just repeat words half-heartedly, because Jesus warned that God wasn't interested in people heaping up empty phrases just a few verses earlier. And we'll get back to the idea of empty phrases before we're done here. But reading, singing, and reciting the Psalms, that was a common way to pray in Jesus' day. And he never indicated that that itself was a problem. In number 622, this prayer is taught directly by God. And he gives a specific set of words for the priestly sons of Aaron to regularly bless the people of Israel. And you've heard them before. It reads in verse 22, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. So when it comes to spontaneous prayer versus pre-planned prayer, a healthy prayer life, I'm going to suggest tonight, it's not going to tend to be 100% one or the other. I say that because if God gives us prayers to use, we should use them. And if the example of the saints throughout the Bible includes so many spontaneous prayers, I can't list them all if I wanted to, then we could imitate that example, and we should as well. If, only, if someone only ever read their prayers, and you might be saying, well, who does that? Maybe from the Book of Common Prayer, or the traditional liturgy. And there are people who do. They're called Catholics or Episcopalians. Or 
maybe you're a Puritan and you only tend to use things like the Valley of Vision or pre-written stuff. Maybe you're a Puritan in the room. Maybe you only ever use the Psalms and you don't really trust yourself to come up with anything good. Something might be wrong. In your life, I'm just going to say, or in your ongoing family worship, if it tends to be even like 90% of one or the other, it could really be healthy for you to rework that and change things up. Now, the longer I've been at this, and I, I really do feel like I've been at this a long time, the, the more fond I'm becoming of structure in prayer. By that I mean as far as pre-written material goes, prayer lists can be very helpful. There are so many things for which we should pray, and calling on our faulty memory, especially mine right now, I feel like an 80-year-old in a 33-year-old's body at times. <laughs> as tired as children may make us, as much as our work may strain our brains uh, at the end of the day, and then you try to remember everything you're supposed to pray about or everyone you should pray for, uh, the list is so much better than a faulty memory to re- recall them in a moment. There's actually an app I use, I'm going to suggest it, called Prayer Mate. Um, it's all one word, where you can log different praises and requests, and it can group them and randomize them into little small lists so that you can have a refreshed prayer list every session. You swipe, and there's a new prayer list, and eventually you're going to get through all of them. Um, but while I mention lists, it may also be helpful to make a journal of prayers that have been answered over the years. I don't know anyone personally who's really done this, but I have heard of this person named George Mueller, and his prayer diaries, his journals about his life running an orphanage that grew from 300 to thousands within the course of years, it was something else. I read this morning about a boiler that they needed fixed desperately, and it was getting very cold. It was the middle of winter, and remember, this is 1800s. This is not you know, our modern time where we have so many other ways to uh, insulate against this stuff. Um, and his orphans were going to be extremely cold in the middle of the winter if they didn't get this fixed. He prays, and he prays not only that they'll have enough to fix the boiler, but he prays specifically a sort of Nehemiah prayer that the men will have a mind to work, like the men in Nehemiah had a mind to work on the wall. These men come, and uh, they are going, and they manage to do it for the budget, by the way. God provides the money. And then when he goes down and he hears that they've undone all the bricks, they're working on the boiler, they're going to fix it, he hears them say, the, the leader calls out to them, do you want to come back tomorrow and do it? And they say, no, we're going to work all night. <laughs> we're going to work all night. They had a mind to work. And his prayer was answered. He also prayed that God would send a wind to keep the cold away. And it turns out that next morning, there was a different directional trajectory to the wind. And it actually did. Uh, it didn't get nearly as cold, I'm going to say, as it was going to get. He records it. True things that happened in his life. He prayed God answered. So pre-written material. Think about prayer lists. Think about prayer journals. And think about, if you pray for things, how often do you remember that God answered your prayers? How often do you praise him for that fact that he answered your prayers? And how, over the years, could you look back at that? Imagine keeping that with your family as an ongoing archive and looking through it over the years with your kids and your kids getting those reminders that God indeed answered what we prayed on December 23rd of 2022. It just took about maybe eight months later, for instance. Or that God did provide the money for the car repair we were asking for one night in family worship. So the fourth biblical principle, I'm going to say, is that prayer can and should 
be done as individuals. So yes, you should pray yourself and corporately. You should pray together as couples, as families, as elders, and as a church. For instance, looking at prayer as couples. Among married couples, several of whom are in the room, praying together in your home, it was pretty normal in the early church. In 1 Corinthians 7, 5, Paul is addressing the need for married couples to take care of each other's physical needs. And he mentioned that the only reason to hold off on that for a limited time was that they would devote themselves as a couple to prayer. So this would be a sort of mutual fasting for prayer's sake. But even then, not for too long, but addressing husbands here tonight, having regular times with you and your wife was not only a biblical practice in the days of the early church, but it's a really good idea for the spiritual health and the unity of your marriage. Husbands in the room, if you can't count how many times in the last few months that you and the missus have made time to pray with and for each other as a couple, then I'd encourage you, consider making that a habit uh, weekly or, or monthly or bi-monthly or maybe I'm crazy, daily. Now, when it comes to praying for your children, and this could be during family worship or bedtime or before meals, there are a few ways you can approach this. One way is that we may pray for our kids. For our family, this happens to, during family worship each night. I'm usually asking God for a few specific things. Give my kids good sleep, protection through the night, pray that God saves them at an early age, and then he blesses them with a godly spouse, meaningful work, and provides for their needs and gives them lots of babies one day. Pray all those things. Another, another way, um, not just praying for our kids, is that we can pray with our kids. So earlier I mentioned that one night I asked the kids to all take a turn and say something to God in the prayer. I was just asking for one sentence from each of them. And Calvin asked essentially uh, for a blizzard the next day in the middle of July. He wanted it to snow the next day. Augie said something about good sleep, I think. Maybe. Uh, something about sleep. And Sophie mumbled something for about ten seconds that I couldn't quite make out. It sounded like she broke into Chinese, actually. It was, it was just practice. Just practice. But I'm hoping to have the kind of prayer life one day where during family worship, our kids will pray for family members who are sick. Or for missionaries. Or for a fellow church member who is struggling. Or someone we're attempting to evangelize. And one more way to do this. Pray for your kids, with your kids, and over your kids. This is, in my case, using a biblical gesture of putting your hand on your kid's head and praying a blessing over them as if you were Isaac blessing Jacob. Of course, I don't have the supernatural power to prophesy over my children, but I do have a lot of blessings from Scripture I can use. I often use the prayer of number six that we mentioned earlier. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. And I, I usually use that one, but my other favorite right now is Genesis 24, 60, where Rebecca's family blesses her as she's about to begin her life with Isaac, and they say, and I do this with Sophie all the time, may you be the mother of thousands and of tens of thousands, and may your children possess the gates of their enemies. That's a good one, isn't it? They were confused by it until they got used to hearing it. And there are a number of blessings like that in the Bible. I'm just starting to hunt for them, really. Now let's get to the fifth shaping principle. Prayer should glorify God 
with praise and thanksgiving. In Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray, and this is how he opens the model prayer for us all. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be kept holy, may your kingdom come soon, and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first thing is not asking anything of God in this model prayer, but it's worshiping God, our Father, as the Holy One whose name should be reverenced. There's a structure I like. It's called the ACTS model, A-C-T-S, which is adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication in that order. And I'm just going to, for these purposes tonight, I'm going to combine the adoration and thanksgiving piece. Psalm 150, verse 2, captures the spirit of this really well. It is, praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Thank him for what he has done and praise him for who he is. One practical step, and there are so many you could do here, can be to take each letter in the alphabet. And they used to do this in Hebrew, by the way. It was called acrostics. But in our case, for English, for a second, take each letter in the alphabet and look for an attribute of God that starts with that letter. God is all-knowing, A. He is beautiful, B. He is um, courageous, and that God the Son went to the cross for us, C. He defines reality, D. And you look for an E, and so on. That's one way you can do it. Of course, there are plenty of ways to remind yourself of things that you can be thankful for and praise him for just by making a list of the ways he has provided for you, otherwise known as counting your blessings, or just by reading the Psalms as a launching pad, because the Psalms praise him quite a bit for his mighty deeds and his excellent greatness. You can also use the scripture reading or catechism of the day as your launching point during family worship. If you're reading about something really cool in the Psalms about God, that can be something you can say in prayer right after that when you're talking with your kids or when you're praying. Now the sixth principle. And there are a lot of them tonight. I'm going to try to push through them quickly. Prayer should make requests of God. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. For which one of you, is son, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? One other thing I'm thinking about here is what Jesus said in the model prayer. He said, give us this day our daily bread. And he did that after praising the Lord's glory. And I dare to reference Charles Spurgeon again from 1882. He said, The lusting of the wicked, I love this quote, I really do. The lusting of the wicked develops self and contention. It kills and it desires to have. It fights and it wars. Hear this again. The wicked, basically, they take what they want. They want it, they take it. The godly man, when he's full of desire, he asks and he receives at the hand of God. Think about that. Two ways to live. You want it, you take it. Here, the godly man, if you want it, you ask and you receive from God himself. We'll talk more about the best way to make requests in just a moment. But let's go to the seventh principle. Prayer should involve confession to God if you have sinned, as well as seeking forgiveness. As a part of the prayer Jesus was modeling when he was teaching them, he used these words. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. In 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. I'm noticing that Jesus doesn't begin 
guys, the prayer with confession of sin, it's part way down. So God can still hear you in this moment in the prayer he's teaching. God can hear you if you're struggling with unconfessed sin, but if it's there, you should do business with God and get that out of the way pretty quickly. Hebrews 4.16 is always a blessing to remember. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And if you're struggling when it comes to praying, if we're not knowing for sure if there's anything free to repent of, maybe this just feels wrong, maybe prayer just feels difficult, is there something sinful that's getting between me and God right now? I'm going to say the Holy Spirit is adept at convicting us. So repeating advice that I heard from a pastor of mine years ago, if you don't know what you should repent of, ask God to show you by his Spirit. And he will. It's one, one thing you're going to usually get an answer for pretty quick. The depths of your soul right there in your conscience. Eighth principle. Prayer should remind us and move us to seek reconciliation and peace with our neighbors before we proceed further. We notice in the same prayer where we say, forgive us our sins. What do we hear immediately after that? As we have forgiven our debtors. Implying, guys, that we've already taken care of that. Jesus says further in Matthew 5.23, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, you leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So when we pray, we should be quick to ask for forgiveness from God and just as quick to make things right with our neighbors in as much as it is up to us. Every time we pray, we want to make sure we're not behaving like the unforgiving servant of Matthew 18. The king forgives this one servant's massive debt. You all know the story. Then the servant goes and he mistreats, chokes out, beats against the wall his fellow servant who owed an immensely smaller debt. It doesn't end well for that servant who did that. The reminder, it's stark and it's right there in the Lord's Prayer that we need to forgive as we have been forgiven. If we don't, our prayer life is certainly going to be affected for the worse. And sometimes the neighbor who has something against us is our spouse. 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. If you and your wife are fighting, or you're failing to honor her and live with her in an understanding way, your prayers themselves may be hindered. Sometimes that neighbor is our child, whom we're about to lead in family worship. It's difficult as the parent who has to be the enforcer, as I was today, to admit when I went too far and disciplined out of anger. Or if I'm being inconsistent with my son, or starting to provoke him too much instead of properly bringing him up in discipline and instruction. It's hard. You, you don't want to be a hypocrite to your son, you know? But sometimes I need to make sure I've asked for forgiveness from my kid before I start to lead him in prayer pray over him. Sometimes that neighbor is our friend to whom we can reach out. Sometimes that neighbor is an enemy with whom we cannot reconcile. Maybe they're gone. Maybe they have died. Maybe they're in prison. Maybe they're just too far away and we just can't reconnect with them. Or it's just not going to work if we tried. But we should still bless them, seek the best for them, and be willing to forgive them. Because we don't want to hinder our prayers. Now, on to the ninth principle. 
Prayer should be our first weapon against anxiety and temptation. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus closes with, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Ephesians 6, 16-18 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The darts thing always threw me off, I'm just going to admit, because I know what a dartboard looks like, and I know what arrows look like, and I don't think of them as the same thing. But here, that's basically what you're doing. You're in a battle, and the flaming arrows are coming at you, and those things hurt. Not that I've experienced it, but, you know, I imagine they would hurt. I've seen movies. You need a shield. You need a helmet to protect your head from getting taken out with an arrow. You need the sword of the Spirit. Verse 18, praying at all times. See, that's how he follows it up. The armor of God, and he prays it up immediately with, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This is about spiritual warfare. And all of that other stuff, the, the faith, the sword of the Spirit, the word of God, prayer is what's happening through all of that. Spiritual warfare is about prayer. Philippians 4, 5-7 to adds, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... Let me try that again. Do not be anxious about anything. Anything. I'm a very anxious person. I, I tend to do that. That is my besetting sin. As my wife can tell you tonight, I was anxious about coming up here tonight to tell you all that. Not, not telling you I'm anxious, but just coming up here to teach. I get so anxious so easily about work. I get so anxious so easily about money, about provision for our family, about our goals, about... Anyone who's in trouble in my life, if they're in trouble, I ache for them. I want to help them. I wish I could fix them. I can't. So you get anxious. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, all that mixed together, the thanksgiving and the supplication, letting your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In family worship, it can be a profound example to your children if you pray for some of the things that are bothering you the most right now. The desire to be holy, the desire to be content, the desire to take care of your family, the anxiety of feeling like everything's getting more expensive, like eggs right now, or in my case, chicken feed right now. The point I'm making is, isn't that you should be putting any burdens on your children. Please hear me say that. Don't put burdens on your children. Not at all. It is good to shelter them from worry as much as you can and just let them be kids. The point I am making right now is that your children should see how you deal with worry. They should see that you should teach them tangibly how you cast your cares on the Lord, knowing he cares for you. One day, they're going to be tempted to anxiety too. And they're not just going to have the theory of how to pray through discouragement or struggle. They're going to have the vivid memories of exactly how it played out in mom and dad's lives and how mom and dad overcame those things. We're not always going to know how to thread that needle and it's better to err on the side of protecting them. I understand that. But if you're able to show them how to live out the two passages I just read about spiritual warfare and about taking your anxiety and praying, that's going to ground them one day, and they're going to follow your example. Tenth principle, prayerlessness is not an option. In 1 Samuel 12, 23, he mentions that it is his farewell address to Israel. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. First Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 
if you look at your life and find not that you missed one prayer here or two there, but looking and seeing a general prayerlessness, that you only pray, for instance, at church, if even then, there's most likely, most definitely a problem there. In Samuel's case, he calls ceasing to pray a sin. And the Apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians that God's will for you is that you not cease to pray. And we certainly don't want to cause our children or wife to stumble by leading them as a household to sin in that way. And if you find this is you, even if awkward prayer, it's better than prayerlessness, and usually prayerlessness is indicative of some other area of unrepentance, you may find that what's true of David in Psalm 32.4 is what's happening to you. For all day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In those times, I would hope to remind anyone who's struggling with that of Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I would encourage you to boldly approach the throne, find mercy and grace. Principle 11. As a contrast to prayerlessness, prayer should be a consistent habit in our lives and our families. It's a good biblical precedent to let certain occasions in our life prompt us to pray, like rising, sleeping, eating, reading God's word, traveling, um, feast days, fast days, worship gatherings, and harvests. Certainly a biblical thing to often pray when you would thank God, of course, when you collected your harvest, when you went on a journey. The prophet Daniel, he had a habit of prayer. He prayed three times a day as a habit and had a specific place where he would do it. These are not commands, and there's no need to feel guilty about not praying on every occasion. But if you were looking for a way to, by habit, pray more during your day, it could be good to use certain reminder occasions to do so. Keeping with Matthew 6 and with Jesus' teaching, it can be helpful to have a specific place we set aside as our room into which we go and we shut the door and we can pray. It may also be edifying to try and incorporate appropriate biblical gestures when you pray. Any, any discipline in your life requires a plan. If it didn't require a plan, effort, it wouldn't be a discipline. If it doesn't require any regular cadence or rhythm, it wouldn't be a discipline either. Spiritual disciplines are no different. Showing up every weekday to your job at eight is going to prompt you to work that job. It certainly does for me. Showing up for dinner with your family is going to prompt you to talk to your family every night at dinner. And thankfully, it does for me too when we eat dinner. Showing up at the gym three times a week at the same time will prompt you to work out at that gym. In the same way, if you associate waking up or going to bed or preparing to eat or reading the word in the morning or getting in the car to hit the road or even family worship with brief prayer, then you'll start to notice that provided you are fully throwing yourself into those small moments, you are becoming a prayerful person. Twelfth principle, and we're almost done. There's no biblically commanded number of prayers or hours of prayer or minutes of prayer that each person must attain. It's going to be different for all of us because we all have different callings, different bandwidths, different professions. We are not always going to have the same amount of time of the day. And you, by obeying God, have to work six days and rest on the Sabbath. That's obeying God. So if you are late to work every day because you're still on your knees, that's a problem. You're disobeying God in another area because you think you're obeying God in one. There is a limit. So we all will have our limits, but there's no one set number of things you have to do. To prepare for and state the 13th principle, I'm going to quote Mr. Spurgeon, one of my favorite guys, for the last time tonight, and I want to test what he's saying against Scripture to see if it stands, but I have personally found it very interesting as a way to look at this. It's going to be in your notes as well. 
the long version. I'm going to say the short version. In 1868, Mr. Spurgeon said the following about prayer meetings. But there are some things which hinder the prayer meeting when we are at it. One is long prayers. Long prayers then spoil prayer meetings. For long prayers and true devotion in our public assemblies seem pretty much to be divorced from one another. Prayer meetings are often hindered by a lack of directness and by beating about the bush. I admired a prayer I heard last Monday night in which a brother said, Lord, the orphanage needs 3,000 pounds. Be pleased to send it. Another brother would have said, Lord, we have great difficulties in our work. Do you be pleased to help us? Would have been more vague in general, by the way. But this brother just stated the case, and I think he believed the Lord would hear him. I fear that much of our prayer is lost because we do not sufficiently throw our hearts into it. It is possible for us to attend the meeting and all the while be thinking of the home, the infant in the cradle, or the shop, the field, the farm, the factory, the counting house. And I know not what beside. Is it any wonder then that prayer halts? The brother who prays may be burning with earnest desire, but his prayer lags because we are not backing it with silent fervor and passionate longing for God's blessing. Oh, brother and sisters, we have often spoiled our prayer meetings thus. Here's where I think he got this idea. The idea of long prayers being a bad thing in these cases. The idea of needing to throw ourselves, all of our hearts into it. And this is going to be really important for what I'm getting to tonight. This is the most important thing I feel like I'm going to say, honestly. Matthew 6, verse 5 says, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. 200-year-old advice, 2,000-year-old teaching. To state the 12th principle, when making our requests, we should strive to be purposeful, direct, specific, and brief. I think especially the term empty phrases is speaking to this. Prayer should not, it should not be boring or tedious or aimless. Prayer should, it should receive our full attention, our presence, and our investment. And brief but fervent is much better than wordy and half-hearted. Now, granted, granted, because it's the first thought I had, too. Some prayers and psalms and scripture have a lot of words. But they are not half-hearted. They are not formal. They are not aimed to impress. The long prayers in scripture are God-breathed. No word of scripture is fluff. Every word has a purpose and it will not return void. The idea of brevity, it comes from Jesus in this passage. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes says something similar. When you come before the Lord, he's got in heaven and you are here on earth. Let your words be few. Specificity. When I say you should be brief, specific. What do I mean by specific? I mean that Jesus is saying, ask and you will receive. Ask for what you want. Be clear. Come, tell God if you want. Do you want bread? He's not going to give you a fish. Ask him for bread. Be specific. You're here to ask from the Lord, not to impress anyone. The long, sorry, um, knock on the door will be opened. It comes from James as well, who says that you have not because you ask not. The fervent piece comes from Jesus as well. Because the words empty phrases don't imply that you're not being fervent, do they? If you aim for short, specific, and intense, then the Holy Spirit gives you more to say. If that happens, that's great. If you are quoting scripture reading pre-written material and your heart is fully into it, 
and you fully resonate with the words coming out of your mouth, that is wonderful. But don't, don't waste precious minutes of your life. Don't disrespect God by saying something you don't mean. God already sees through you. He knows what you need, and he knows what you mean. Pretty words with no heart doesn't impress him. And prayers with ulterior motives will go unanswered. And the final principle tonight, prayer should be persistent. Colossians 2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Luke 18 tells about a, a parable that they ought always to pray and never lose heart. It's a widow. She didn't get justice. She comes to the judge. She asks for justice. He is an evil man. I'm paraphrasing. He doesn't give her justice. She comes back again and again and again and again. And finally, it says, Yet this, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not give God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So being persistent has to do with him finding faith. It has to do with faith. Are you going to give up or are you going to keep coming back? There is a difference somehow between coming back to the Lord and being too wordy in our prayers. There is a difference. Coming continually back to unanswered prayers until we have our answers. Believing he's heard us, but checking back in with the Lord to remind him that we are awaiting his answer in all this. This itself is actually obedience to God. And learning how to do this ourselves and in our families, it's a process I think best achieved by practice. We'll find the right way to be persistent without using empty phrases. So these are encouragements, guys. This is to help families, not guilt them. To those of us who could pray more, I want all of us praying more often enjoying our prayer lives, not finding them boring, seeing them grow. I don't want us to be living in more shame and finding prayer more difficult. The principles are meant to encourage you to speak, not keep you from speaking. May we think about this. May we grow in this. Let's pray. Father, you hear me. Thank you for hearing us. Help us grow in prayer. Help us who haven't been praying to start. Teach us what to say. May everything that we've been working through help us in family worship. Mold us, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Jared, Andy, question and answer? Or are we, uh... Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How can, does anyone have any questions? I'll ask that. Any thoughts, any commentary? I know I provide you all a big six-page commentary. Sorry about that. There were so many things. This is, this is very helpful. And particularly that last point, uh, perfect 